Welcome to Political Therapy. I am your host, Nicholas Villa. Political Therapy is an online radio program focused on explaining politics and healing society. Pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Hi, and welcome back to Political Therapy. It's great to be here once again. It's great to do this uh, podcast in English once again. Uh, I'm aware that this podcast hasn't been done in English for some time. Uh, That changes today. And basically the change is due to the fact that a friend of mine, philosopher uh, Tomas Molina, Colombian philosopher Tomas Molina was able to get an interview uh, with a world-renowned uh, academic intellectual who focuses on the subjects of uh, Hegelian philosophy, Marx, Freudian psychoanalysis, and psychoanalysis in general. So he's very much along the lines of this podcast. Uh, his name is Tad Nagawun. And um, well, he was kind enough, and we were fortunate enough to have an interview with him. So that's uh, today's episode. So just before we get into that interview, uh, I want to uh, say hi to our new subscribers and our and our new listeners, which we're getting on a daily basis. So that's very encouraging for me. So I want to thank you guys. I want to say hi. And without any further ado, here is Tad Magawin. Enjoy. My, my first question is about uh, our current situation. Um, one of the most common conservative arguments against emancipatory political movements is Fukuyamaist. We are already at the end of history. Therefore, every single human is recognized as a human being by the big other, at least in the US. It sort of goes like this. You want to be treated as a human being, but you're already treated as a human being. <laughs> If it not were for neo-Marxist propaganda, you would be able to see it, right? So oppression is imaginary, right. not in the sense of Lacan, in the everyday sense of the word. Right. Go home, stop protesting, and enjoy your recognition. That's basically what the right-wing commentators say to uh, feminists and uh, black people, etc. So one can argue that today the master supports his mastery by appealing to egalitarianism. Uh, but isn't that contradictory? <laughs> According to common sense, those kind of contradictions should nullify an ideology. But what can Hegel and psychoanalysis tell us about ideological contradiction in this case? Is it possible that contradiction cements the master's rule? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's possible. I mean, I think that the the what you're talking about, the way that recognition is is 
bandied about as a way as a as an idea that there's no need for emancipation because you already have recognition i think yeah. uh i think that's a to me that's that focus that what the idea of that is itself problematic because recognition i don't think can ever equal emancipation because recognition always depends on some people being recognized and other people not being recognized yeah. so so that even so the, the idea of universal recognition is i think impossible and so i think if the if if the ruling system uh uses recognition as the basis for its what what it wants to call emancipation or freedom or liberty or equality then it's always going to be given to some and not to others so in that sense you're right that there that the way in which contradiction functions can actually be used by the ruling system to sustain its rule because it it gives you the the, the it, it plays lip service to the idea of recognition but recognition depends on this some in some out and if that's not working then recognition's worth like if everybody gets recognized as something as human as citizens whatever it's worthless <laughs> if everybody is recognized so the power of recognition i think this is i think hegel's great point it's maybe clearest in the master slave dialectic part right that that there's no such thing as mutual recognition in which everybody gets recognized equally that just doesn't exist because the very basis of recognition is the inequality implicit in it yes um but the the dominant narrative in right-wing circles is that we we've achieved uh, a, a universal recognition and that's why they think that um current efforts uh to emancipate um an oppressed group can only be ironically ideological in the sense of marx i mean uh, a set of ideas which distort our perception of reality. Right. <laughs> and they think that uh, those supposedly neo-Marxist uh, ideologies, which uh, in which in a, in a way tell people that they're oppressed when they're not, um, are in a way um, the expression of a certain bad faith. Because they right. they wanna they wanna destroy Western civilization and they wanna destroy our way of life and our um, our prosperity and um, therefore we shouldn't we shouldn't take them seriously. Uh, but of course, from a Lacanian perspective, that um, projection onto the other of what we think the other is is precisely a projection. I mean. Uh, what what can we say from a Lacanian perspective of that um, of of what uh, the right wing commentators project onto the left other? Well, I mean, I would say they're the ones that are destroying the civilization, not the left. Uh, first of all, but I think that I think that what's interesting is the way that this Lacan's idea that the big other doesn't exist. I think is a crucial mm -hmm. idea for how we address this notion that everybody has been recognized because if the big other doesn't exist then it's impossible the idea of full recognition is impossible mm -hmm. because the big other would be the vehicle of that recognition so i feel like once you're already talking about 
you know, everybody is recognized, everybody's not, everybody's recognized. Once you're on that turf, you're already on a right-wing turf. So I think the question of recognition is always the wrong question to pose precisely on Lacanian grounds because the big other doesn't exist and there can be no, there's no force that provides the recognition. There's just no, nothing exists that could be the, the, the foundation for the recognition that the right wing is claiming already exists. So my point would be, but that doesn't, that cannot exist because there's no force that could, could be the, the guarantor of that recognition. But what, what do you mean when, when you say that the, the big other doesn't exist? Because, I mean, it doesn't exist in the sense of being an, how to put it, um, uh, it's a fiction, right? It, it's a human creation. Um, and in that sense, uh, it's imaginary in the common sense uh, sense of the term. Right, right. Um, but what we imagine is real in the sense of uh, existing. I mean, exists in our imagination and and imaginary forces, again, in the common sense of the word, uh, have um, consequences in the real world. I mean, the fact that it doesn't exist apart from what we imagine uh, doesn't mean that it Uh, it's not important or th that it doesn't uh, have effects in, in real life. Yeah, of course. Of course. That's right. That's right. The big other doesn't exist, but it does have effects. That's for sure. Yeah. Can you guys but, hear me? I'm sorry. Yeah, we can hear you. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah, great. 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 Okay. Good morning. Um, sorry. Sorry. Good that's morning. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad you're in. I'm glad you're here. Uh, no, I, I think that's absolutely right, Tomas, that, that the big other has a, doesn't exist, but has effects. Yes. Mm -hmm. But... It can't be the source of recognition because it's not substantial. It's not a consistent, substantial force. Mm. Instead, it's at odds with itself. So the part of it that's giving recognition, another part of it is undermining recognition. You see, so yes. there's no way in which the big other can, even though it does have effects, like it causes people to desire in a certain way, it causes them to to try to conform to it in a certain way, right, of course. But it can't, it cannot be the source of recognition. And that's what I think is, that's what I take from this idea that the big other doesn't exist. That, that, that feeling you get when you feel like you're recognized, that that really is coming from yourself and not from this, external force of the big other because it can't it can't do that like it it's it's too much at odds with itself to be able to to grant you recognition but aren't human beings like that as well i mean we are at odds with ourselves yes. and yeah. we undermine ourselves so yes. um so how is it possible if the big other is at odds with itself and we are at odds with ourselves right i think that's why that recognition is impossible like that's why I, that's my claim to this right-wing uh narrative of history that we've all gained recognition i just think that's a totally impossible position to be in i don't think it's possible for you to recognize me or me to recognize you or for the society to recognize everyone i just don't think those things are possible that's why i think recognition i know it's a very popular way of thinking among liberals and right wing. I know liberals, especially in the U.S., especially mm. actually liberals that study Hegel, very interested in the idea of recognition. But I think I think it's a 
that's a false, that's a dead end to go down. I really do, uh, you know, politically. I, I don't think it's the, because I don't think, I don't, I don't think it's possible to get, as I said, to, to, to grant or receive recognition. I also don't think, I don't understand what's gained by it, frankly. Like, I don't understand, like, if you feel recognized, what have you gained by that? I don't feel like, I don't feel like there's any gain. Like, I don't think that can be the basis for freedom or for equality or for all these things that we value. I just don't think recognition can be that, the vehicle for that. But isn't that Hegel's point that precisely by recognition you you feel yourself like a human being and uh, um, what do you think? No, do you I don't think? think so. No, 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 no. I think Hegel is all about. I mean, I think this is the point in the master, the famous master slave dialectic, right? That that yeah, yeah. recognition fails. That it fails. It doesn't like the slave in a way triumphs not because the slave gets recognized, but the slave recognizes the. But that recognition is worthless. And so that's like the the move out of the master-slave dialectic is right into stoicism, which is the precisely this, like the external recognition is meaningless to me. So I think that I think that from Hegel's perspective, recognition is never an answer. I mean, he does, it is true in the encyclopedia, he talks a little bit about mutual recognition as the basis from which you can society can then develop but it's very like that's the for him mutual recognition is a very it's a it's a it doesn't accomplish very much politically it just allows it just means that i like we are able to have this conversation because there's a mutual recognition that's all it gives us it, there's nothing more than that because all it is is a recognition that there's another subject who's also in the same situation as me, but you can't base, for Hegel, you can't base anything on that except that we could have this conversation. All right, but what's the way out? Because uh, if we if we cannot recognize other people, I mean, at, at, at least not, uh, we, we cannot have universal recognition. We can have that, uh, you could, You could argue that uh, what we can have and we we have had is uh, uh, the um, master and slave relation. I mean, um, and we are condemned to that. So what do you think? Well, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that there's, I think that Hegel's point is that we can, you know, master and slave dialectic is very early in the phenomenology, right? So there are way many There's a path out of that, he thinks, and I and I, I I think the path out of it is, it's not through recognition, it's rather through solidarity in our non-recognition or our non-belonging. Like I think that that's really the, that's really Hegel's position is that solidarity is only is only possible through this experience of the failure of belonging or the failure of recognition. So it's actually the opposite almost of the way in which the right has characterized it like it's it's coming together in our failure to belong that mm -hmm. that's really the nature of emancipation not making everyone belong i think it's the difference between universal inclusion and the acceptance of our necessary exclusion like i think that's the that's how i would distinguish actually I, that's how i would distinguish right and left Frankly, like mm -hmm. that, I think the right is all about let's get everyone included, 
And I think the leftist position mm -hmm. is let's embrace everyone in there in this mutual exclusion and this failure of recognition. So that's I think that's how we come together in solidarity, not as all of us sort of put in, but all of us recognize that we're out. Right. And uh, how is that possible? Uh, well, I mean, I think it's happening right now in the U.S., right? Like, mm -hmm. like, like the, these protests that we're seeing are, are not like we want to all come in, but like all the protesters are like, hands up, don't shoot, right? Or take mm -hmm. any, like they're all identifying with those who are out. They're not saying like, I want to become a cop too. They're mm -hmm. saying, they're saying like, we're all in the position of George Floyd, right? Like that's mm -hmm. the guy who was killed. So yeah, yeah. that's the, that, so the, I think it's a perfect example of that actually, that they're all, there's this mass identification with outside, not with, we want to come in. If yeah. I might, if I might say something there, um, yeah. Yeah, uh, this resonates what you've just said, Todd, with you know, with with, with the hello and the good morning. Um, this resonates a lot with contradiction, um, you know, with, which is something I, I've seen recurring in your in your conferences. And you know, you just mentioned the difference between right and left, um, and you know. Here, at least in, in, in this part of the world, you know, we have neighboring Colombia and Venezuela, uh, which is, of course, a real example of galvanized politics polar, or polar, polarization, as it's mentioned here right. or described. And unless you're a centrist, no, and, and uh, you know, centrists consider, you know, Colombia and Venezuela to be the same thing, basically, you know, this whole Chavez phenomenon right. and the Colombian right wing as, you know, landholders, paramilitaries and so on and so on. I, of course, don't think this is the case. Um, however, you know, again, focusing on contradiction, former uh, London Mayor Ken Livingstone, in a very you know pragmatist way, advised uh, Chavez that he should just kill more oligarchs, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to embrace the contradiction. Here in this part, you know, in, in, in Colombia, in this in this country, um, we're, we've just entered you know, recently a peace accord where basically the the basic deal is to not uh, kill each other, right? Right. And uh, the right is very much intent on continuing to kill each other. Every day you have a human rights activist or more that is killed. And the left, uh, you know, uh, sort of maintains this, you know, this this uh, commitment to, to peace, basically to not killing each other. I know peace is, is more complex than that. So, you know, the, the question of otherness, the question of Badiou that says politics is always uh, having an enemy, uh, this question of the Jungian or Jungian shadow, you know, that we project what we, uh, what we banish about ourselves into others. What's the Hegelian take on this contradiction? Yeah, that's really good. That's a great question. So, so Hegel's point, I think it's interesting. So the other figure that you didn't mention that I think fits in line with this is Carl Schmitt. You know, the notion of the friend enemy, yeah. like hit for Schmitt, politics is based on the friend enemy distinction. And when that distinction collapses, we lose politics. So he thinks there's almost an ethical imperative to sustain the friend enemy distinction. And I think when I wrote that book on Hegel, I, it came to me that that really Hegel's great enemy is Schmidt. That I think that for Hegel, the notion of contradiction, ha like, like Schmidt believes that contradiction has to be this external opposition, 
that that's how it has mm. to manifest itself. Mm. And that's what you're talking about with the right wing in Colombia right now. Mm. But for Hegel, and this sounds a little bit like what the left is doing, where for Hegel, the contradiction is internal and the external opposition is only a manifestation of the ex the internal contradiction. So that, yeah. so that you have to read, it's like a, a process of interpretation. You interpret the external opposition that you experience as an expression of this internal contradiction within yourself, which I think doesn't mean that sometimes you don't have to fight external enemies, right? Like you certainly do, but that I think- That would be the question. Yeah, so what do you, so yeah, okay. Yeah, I think sometimes that happens, but I think you always have to be interpreting the external opposition in terms of your internal contradiction. So I think there's a lot of times when you don't have to fight the external enemy because you realize this is just a manifestation of an internal contradiction for me. And so you have to then attack yourself. And I think to me, the great Hegelian film is Fight Club, right? Like Fight Club is all about the attack on the self as a way to then enable political action. So it's a real, I, th I think that that linking this attack on the self to external, this internal attack on the self to external political action is a real, I think that's a crucial thing for the left. And that's why I find Fight Club is a kind of, uh, like a tutorial for leftist <laughs> politics. <laughs> awesome, yeah, and, and you know, that's a very even psychoanalytic uh, standpoint because, you know, I'm, I'm linked to therapy and their stance is basically that, you know, when you hate something about somebody else, it's your projection of your own banished desires and even your own banished uh, shadow, so to speak. And therefore, there's no point in, you know, in, in this uh, aggressivity or aggressiveness, I'm sorry, because it's just a part of you that you've banished to the shadows. Except I would uh, just add, Nicholas, I would add that you there is a good reason to be aggressive toward yourself. Right? Like, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think, like, if you don't, I, I kind of think that this is another way I would distinguish left and right. That left, the target of its violence is internal, and the target of right-wing violence is always an external enemy. Ah, awesome. Yeah. Ah, okay. To sustain their own identity. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Right. When you're attacking the the opponent, it's you create your you sustain your own identity. That's exactly right. I've. I remember that uh, in Nietzsche's genealogy of morals, he says that, um, I mean, he portrays the master as a as a being without contradictions, like uh, sort of uh, without resentment, uh, a pure and noble. And um, I think that Nietzsche's narrative is a is a good way of. Um, because, I mean, the way Nietzsche shows it is the way that the master has always interpreted himself. Right. That's so he, he doesn't he doesn't understand that he has internal contradictions. Right. And right. Nietzsche believes the master. He thinks that the master indeed doesn't have internal contradictions, that he doesn't have resentment, for example, which is which is something that uh, it's for me at least um, quite difficult to believe because I, I every day I see that the masters are, are full of resentment towards uh, the slaves. Right. 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 I mean, right. they, for example, uh, the resentment that the masters have towards uh, communism is uh, quite unbelievable. I mean, they, they hate it with all their 
being. It's not like Nietzsche says that if they if they avenge what whatever uh, the the other has done to them, uh, they're okay, and that's it. No, the master is full of resentment as well. Right. No, it's a great point. I think that this is one of the points on which Nietzsche and Hegel are totally at odds with each other, because it, you know Hegel's a kind of recognition he's the first philosopher in history i think to recognize the slave as the site of truth and not the master and and it's interesting that for him susan buck morse has a great book on this called hegel and haiti and i think it's because of his yeah. attention to the haitian revolution that he came to this position so it's interesting i think it's like he learned from he learned from haiti this lesson uh, that the truth is on the side of the slave. And I think you're exactly, I, I think resentment is a perfect word, but I also think envy, right? Like, isn't the master yeah, yeah. full of envy for the slave? And the slave's freedom, in fact, which is interesting, right? Because like, slavery is defined as lack loss of, you don't, you know, you don't have freedom. But I mm -hmm. think the, the, the master envies the slave's freedom to enjoy. And I think that's really... And and the mat to be a master is to, to accept this restriction on your enjoyment that that is total, yes. right? And so I think that's why the master is full filled with both resentment and envy in the way that Nietzsche. You're right. I love your point. I, I never thought of this before. This is a great point. But Nietzsche writes as if the master tells the truth, and and he writes from yes. that perspective, right? Like yes. That's, yes. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He quotes, he quotes uh, the Greek masters, right? And they describe themselves as uh, uh, complete and um, without any contradictions and happy. And the slave is the unhappy one, and the and because of that, the resentful one. But it's completely the opposite because, as you say, and you say so yourself in the end of dissatis in the end of dissatisfaction, right? That the the more you ascend on the social scale, the more you have to repress your own desires. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great that's Freud's point, and I think it's a really good point that that repression is kind of an index of class status, right? Like it's not it's not this like individual ailment. It's like you ascend in class status, you have to repress. And that's, or if you're, I mean, it's true that those people who belong to the slave class, if they identify with that upper class, then they have to repress too. So it's not like, there's not an automatic thing, I think. There's not like, you're in a slave position, you're just free. I don't think that, because I know a lot of people, I mean, in the US, it's, a, it's an interesting story that the working class is the most conservative, the white working yeah. It's the most yeah, conservative yeah. sector of the society. It's a crazy thing, but by far, like it's not even close. So yeah, 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 they've yeah. they've so identified with the master class that they have they themselves have had to undergo that repression as well. Well, if yes. if I uh, just jump in here, that brings me to the point of freedom. Um, because watching one of your conferences, I found the concept of uh, freedom freedom through loss quite interesting. You know, right away it resonated with uh, you know workers have nothing to lose but their chains marks and so on but uh, however when I look at, um, at, at Colombia's reality many men you know, you know regardless of class but usually you know in, in the in the most vulnerable classes have to turn to uh, drug trafficking 
and many women have to turn to prostitution you know it's just because you know we're in the periphery and all this stuff um and this phenomenon is now you know pervasive in popular culture maybe even globally you know uh and these drug lords are portrayed and presented as you know pinnacles of freedom you know they they can do literally and enjoy and enjoy they can do literally whatever they want and you know when asked you know the the individuals themselves or the subjects uh they you know women for example defend prostitution as a free choice you know sometimes even as a social service you know because you know the disabled people and you know lonely men and uh, curious couples and so on and so on and both men and women present uh, you know their, their traits uh, as as a form of advancement in life what you were mentioning you know going up the the social uh, ladder you know um and it and and of course I, I i consider they're they're honest you know when they make this this uh evaluation of their of their um life however you know uh what's the hegelian take on on that sort of freedom you know because because they defend it as you know uh, even today actually uh there's an article that uh, a woman wants to abolish prostitution because you know it's oppressive and so on and so on yeah. and a prostitute answers back precisely what i've just said you know don't don't patronize me you're not my master um, you know i do this out of my, you know because i because i'm free and i enjoy it and so on and so on and i help people so what's the hegelian take on on, on this you know yeah um, that's a good question like so i feel like <laughs> i feel like you know because you believe yourself to be free that doesn't make you free right <laughs> I think that's the yeah. first thing. It's very important, I think. And I, I also feel like you have to, to be free for Hegel, you have to feel uprooted from your identity. And I think all those those examples of the drug dealer and the prostitute, they don't have that experience of being uprooted. In fact, they feel like they are their identity. And I think freedom hmm. depends upon precisely this disjunction that you're always experiencing between Let me put it this way, between who you are and where you are, between, you know, so you never, that not fitting in where you are is crucial to being free. And it's not, it seems like the drug dealer, I mean, I, I, I only know like stereotypical depictions, right? Yeah, that's completely accurate, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The drug dealer feels like he, it's almost always he, uh, fits in, right? Like fits in the, the, the position that they occupy. So I think that's, to me, the index of unfreedom, not of freedom, because the more you feel like you fit in and I'm just doing what comes natural, the more you're unfree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they certainly are, are totally identified with their social role under and their mask and their ego. But but, you know, so so what is it that they should lose to be free? Well, I think they'd have to lose that feeling of, of their own good, right? Like that. Okay. I mean, I think freedom depends on not feeling good about yourself, ironically. I mean, that's the, that's the, like, you can't feel like you, you have to give up that good feeling about yourself to be free and to, and you know, to, this is, I think, a lesson of psychoanalysis too, that you're constantly struggling with, you know, with yourself and not feeling like you are your, that, that feeling like you're not yourself is the sign that you're free. That And so I think that's, the problem is that those, people in that position, I think, feel like they that's who they are. Like anytime, this other thing I would say is anytime you're identified with your, if anytime you eliminate the distance between your subjectivity and your symbolic identity, that's unfreedom. Because I, 
you know, symbolic identity is never free, whereas subjectivity is free. Mm. And so when mm. you shrink the distance between those two things, that's the way you give up your freedom because you it means you abandon your subjectivity for the sake of your symbolic identity. And so this in, is, yeah. in, in a way, both the prostitute and the drug lord are uh, castrated, so to speak. Like, right, right. Right, but they but isn't aren't they really disavowing their castration? I mean, that's another way to think of it, right? Like, like their like unfreedom would be disavowing castration, whereas freedom would be the acceptance of your castration. Ah, okay. Right. But I think that for them, at least for the drug lord, um, accepting uh, his or her own castration. Well, let's say his because, like you said, so yourself. Uh, most of them are are men um like accepting um his castration is very problematic more more so than for most people i think because at least in, in colombian culture the drug lord is the personification of the of the being that's not castrated right the exception right. because all of the excesses of the drug lord are precisely the materialization of the non-castration, right? I can do whatever I want. I have the enjoyment of the primordial father, right? Um, <laughs> well, so you're a drug lord precisely because you want to disavow your castration, right. more so than anyone else. Right, I think that's absolutely right. That I was just, I'm glad you said primal father because <laughs> like the father in Totem ta and Taboo is exactly what the drug lord seems like, right? Like yeah. any, yeah. he can sure. have any women, he can do anything he wants. Absolutely not, the, the police and, and governmental authorities have absolutely no sway over him, right? He just does what he wants. He can I buy anybody, everybody and everything and so on and so on. Yeah. Right, 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 right. There's nothing that he couldn't have that he, he could just buy whatever he wants, right? So I think you're you're exactly right that he is, He's the personification of this ideal of non-castration, which is also the. the, the I mean, Trump is like that as well. So, I'm sorry. That that's uh, Trump's problem as well, because well, it, right. it, every I mean, working class Americans, I think at least from from my perspective, uh, think that Trump is the personification of the the human that's not castrated, right? He can no, do whatever he true. wants, and that's there are no. I mean. Liberals think that they're gonna um, 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 discredit Trump if they show his excesses, and it's the complete opposite because people admire him precisely because of his excesses. Yeah, it's a great point. You should be on the news here in America. <laughs> <laughs> We need that point made because it's really true. Like the the, the CNN is the worst is the most guilty party of this like night after night of the excesses of trump and 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 it all it does is feed his the people that love him because yeah. you're exactly yeah. right what they love him for just like people love drug dealers they yeah. love him for that non-castrated well, access yeah now on, on that is, on that I line mean, on that line you know this whole covid 19 uh you know um pandemic and so on has really sort of brought, I, I believe, this this you know old old technocratic master you know in conflict with this you know Bolsonaro Trump you know uh, uh, former master you know completely unbridled, and 
you know, to, to quote to quote Zizek or, or Stalin, are, are are they are they both worse? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. No, I think this is a case where that line is really appropriate, right? Because I hear people in the United States longing for the techno Obama as a techno or Hillary Clinton as a yeah. technocratic. We, at least we we need a good technocrat here to solve. I mean, they don't say it like that, but that's what they mean. <laughs> uh, and I think you're right that that. The problem is that they don't see how that is precisely what gives rise to the populist exactly. figure in Trump. Like it's a it, it's a perfect circle. Like the one comes along, creates the situation, and then the populist responds, and then that creates a situation that the technocrat responds to, and it it's just perpetual. I mean, it's interesting because in the United States we had this chance with Bernie Sanders to to get elected, but then that you know that fell apart. So, I mean. There are these moments at which it, it seems like the only thing that disrupts that is a leftist. Otherwise, you get this perpetual cycle of technocrat and populist right winger, right? Yeah, and even here, the, the, the dynamic seems, seems to be the same. You know, there's perpetual, you know, uh, moderates that are actually just part of the same right, and then the extreme right, and yeah, back and forth. Yeah. Um, yeah, but. Even, even I think that, for example, Obama presents himself as a technocrat, but I mean, he, he, at least in his foreign policy, he was like any other U.S. president. I mean, it's not that he didn't hire um, educated people, unlike Trump, right? Right. Who hires basically everyone. I mean, anyone. Sorry. Right. Um, and but it doesn't matter because the result is exactly the same. I mean, at least in his foreign policy. Uh, right. In fact, I, I think it's even worse. Well, I know I was just going to say, I think you could argue from a perspective of all the other countries in the world. Trump's been better than any U.S. Yeah. president yeah. in recent history. Yeah. Right. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. He's just been better. Like I, I, I my friends and I talk like if you're from another country and you've had the prospect of Hillary Clinton or Trump. I think you want Trump because for once we've had four years, no, we haven't waged war on anyone. I think if Hillary Clinton had been president, I have no doubt that we'd have gone into Syria, you know, full American presence. So I think she's a hawk. Yeah, she's a hawk. Exactly. Exactly. So so it is that is an irony of Trump's <laughs> of Trump's presidency that even yeah, relative yeah. to Obama, he's been more of a peacemaker in the I mean he doesn't care about peace obviously but but in yeah, terms yeah. of the world just because he's so turned back in on himself as a as a you know as a people call him a narcissist I think that's probably right although I think that term gets so overused but I do feel like he's so occupied with himself and this whole make America great is a kind of I, we're going to ignore the rest of the world and frankly that's been better for the rest of the world yeah you know yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, Which is, you know, uh, sorry, oh, Nicholas? Yeah, I, I was just, you know, from, from what you've said, the international relations and so on, the, the whole aspect of Sweden, you know, speaking about this technocratic master and so on, I, you know, I've noticed that it's, you know, they've been attacked so harshly by the media and experts just, be, you know, for dissenting just a bit, like, we'll try something a bit different, and yeah. they get, you know, this onslaught of, of, of attacks. You know, this this technocratic master is also, you know, a very harsh master. You know, if a you, master, yeah. indeed. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. He's not I, less I, of a master. No, no, less of a master. Right. Yeah. I, 
You know, it's interesting because, you know, Lacan distinguishes between the master's discourse and the university discourse. Yeah. But exactly. I always think there's something misleading about that because what you just said, Tomas, like the, this the technocratic is a university kind of figure, yeah. but it's just as much a master as the former master was. I think that's true. And I, what's interesting, I think this is what makes it worse than the old master is that it's so coupled with the logic of capital, right? Like the like what the technocrat envisions as efficiency is what functions best within the capitalist economy. So nothing can, nothing that doesn't fit within the capitalist economy can be technocratically efficient, right? Like that's yeah. the, that's yeah. the way their logic works. And so, and you know, like in, in 2008, Obama had an incredible chance to really socialize a lot of things. Like even I think the right wing here was prepared for nationalization of the banks, et cetera. But he hired a couple of guys who were from Wall Street themselves, and they, you know, they ended up the, they ended up creating a, a bailout package that was that was that so alienated the working class here that I think that to my mind that, that 2008 or 2009 response to the crisis was what that was Donald Trump's election right there. Like it, to my mind, that's when it, the, the 2016 election was decided. So yeah, I feel I, yeah. that, that's the problem with the technocratic thing that it just it just so obeys the logic of capital that it, and, 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 and it's interesting that the, the populist master are the only ones that feel like they can flout a little bit the logic of capital. Right. Like, like that's what Trump has done a little bit. Like, OK, mostly yeah. he's been mostly he's been a capitalist stooge. Right. But at times he's kind of like the raising tariffs on China. There's these little gestures that have kind of put a little wrench in the logic of capital that Obama never did. But that's yeah. part of the tragedy uh, because ultimately to dissent, you know, from this, it seems that you have to be some sort of extreme right-wing nut, right. you know, to dissent. Is, and, yeah. and that's what we're condemned to. That's you're right. I think you're, it's well put that that's the tragedy, right? That dissent has been channeled into the into only this right wing i mean the only there are exceptions i think i mean i i i think around you know there mostly that's true like orban bolsonaro i mean around the world mostly that's true but i think there are and and i guess my he's gone now but the morales figure in bolivia like that was a case of i think dissent that was left wing that la that even lasted for a while so that was i think a really i know it was on a pretty small scale but to my mind that was one of the most impressive leftist uh attempts yep. to create an alternative just because it, it endured in a way that and it didn't rely on oil in the way that chavez chavez did you know it didn't have this kind of get out of jail free card that chavez had hmm. uh i don't know so i feel like that i feel like that was a great example of of one way in which there was a opting out that didn't involve just this right-wing populist thing that you described, Nicholas. Yeah, there's a philosopher... Think... Oh, sorry. No, sorry, yeah. sorry, Nicholas. There's a Latin American philosopher that probably Tomas much, knows much more than me about the guy, Enrique Dussel, and he describes Bolivia as a phenomenon of uh, obedient power. So he says, you know, basically it, it worked because it was their take, Morales and his, the social movement behind him was the power that obeys, obedient power. So, yeah, I don't know. I like that. I 
yeah, maybe maybe there's something there to yeah. To, yeah. to 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 add to you know the, the history of philosophy or to politics. I don't know. Right. You know, there's something there's something strange about um, the way liberals think about uh, social or political regimes that um, challenge these. Um, I don't know. Um, the challenge the harmony between capital and the well-being of uh, of us right because uh, liberals think that there's uh, there's a harmony if you if you um, if you help capital to reproduce itself it's going to help human beings automatically there's no conflict at all right. so of course there's some truth to that to that of course uh, capital can can help human beings but the fact that there's no um, complete harmony is something that never passes their minds. But they think that precisely in, in, in the regimes that uh, challenge that view, um, there, there, there are a lot of contradictions, right? And they're gonna, they're gonna fall down. Uh, for example, Venezuela and uh, Bolivia, they're gonna, um, they're gonna collapse under the weight of their own contradictions. But strangely, strangely enough, they do whatever is in their power to help those supposed contradictions <laughs> work out themselves, right? So, right, right? But leftists, on the other hand, are pointing out the contradictions of capitalism, but because they actually believe in the contradictions of capitalism, they're always saying, hey, if we don't do, um, if we don't reform capitalism, it's actually gonna implode. So at least social democrats, right? So like Verifactus, for example. So we should help capitalism to survive because it's otherwise it's gonna it's gonna disintegrate, right? So actually Verifactus um, believes, for example, in in the actual contradictions of capitalism, but the liberals who project their own contradictions onto Bolivia, for example, don't actually believe that Bolivia is such a contradictory country because they're doing everything that's in their power to undermine it. So, I mean, if it's so contradictory, why should you undermine it? You should just wait for it to um, fall down. Right, right. No, it's a great point. It's a great point. I think, you know, I. I'm sort of torn about this, your point about Verifacus though, right? Because on the one hand, why not just let it play out and destroy itself? Yeah. But on the other hand, I, I'm pretty convinced by this notion of socialism or barbarism, right? Like, like, like it is possible for the decline of capitalism to result in something far worse. Like I think, yeah. you know, so yeah. I think there is, some, I think that's maybe Verifacus's idea that by preserving it, we're staving off the worst, you know? So I yeah. think that's, because I, th you know, I think there's a divide among Marxists, at least the ones that I know on this very question. Like, is it better? Are we in a more revolutionary situation when things are getting better under capital or when things are getting worse? And I think that's still an open question, right? Like, I don't think we know because there have been great revolutionary moments out of seeming prosperity under capitalism and of course the opposite like when it's become a disaster then there have been these revolutionary moments right all right uh, todd it's been a pleasure uh talking with you um it's been a real honor um so um thank you for everything and i i hope we can keep in touch well, let's definitely keep in touch with both of you i i had a great time talking to you thank you so yeah. much 
Thank you very much. It was great to meet you and to talk okay. to you. Good to meet you guys. Okay. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.